Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's Coral Chihuahua time again. <laughs> Tertiary shift. I wish I was singing on that little clip. Anyway, I'm Harry Christophers, and I'm here with Eamon Dugan. Hi, Eamon. Hello, Harry. Good to be back. And Robert Honeyworth. Greetings, Robert. Hi, from York. And uh, in this episode, we're going to pick up from where we left off last episode. We were talking about recording. It's been such an incredibly important part of all our lives. Um, so, you know, how much should we rely on technology? Uh, you know, should we record live or have the luxury of getting it all perfect in sessions? But much more important, how do we choose the repertoire? Should it be composer-led or concept-led or is it dictated by the consumer? I'm sure we've all got our various thoughts on this one. Uh, Eamon, kick off with you. Well, I think a, a, a mix of all worlds is probably best, isn't it? I, I like a concept album, if I'm honest. Uh, I like the variety that that brings, the different styles, different composers. Um, of course, over the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years, we've seen this explosion of, uh, of composer-led recordings as people research uh, new repertoire with, you know, with the explosion of the, of the, or the advent of the CD, as we were talking about in the last episode. This led people to do much more research, uh, digging deeper to find more repertoire uh, to, be, to be able to record, to, you know, to make these first recordings of pieces. Um, so there's been a lot of that. Um, for my, I mean, for my own part, it's been mostly composer-led uh, thus far, yeah. but uh, I like putting together concept programmes. It's really, it's, that's really interesting. I, I find concept-led is, is wonderful. I mean, the problem in the old days with, C, with the CDs, of course, was that when we, in the days of record shops, CD shops, when you actually could go onto the high street and into a store, they really flummoxed people because uh, they were, every, every store was indexed, you know, composer-led. So where did they put the concept album? And unless you were lucky enough in Tower Records, for instance, to have your own, you know, the 16 used to have its own uh, own little section where, it, where you could get everything. But that was always the problem with concept. So maybe now, you know, when people are listing a little bit more uh, digitally, picking, what, picking and choosing online, uh, downloading, maybe they're going to come to the fore a bit more. I don't know. I suppose it you know it depends on the time of day, doesn't it? Uh, I I I think that reviewers like composer-led albums, and they're the ones who talk about them all the time, and create the interest. 
uh, and I think most of us enjoy concept albums. Um, but it depends on the time of day. You know, I like listening to Baroque music at the beginning of the day. I like listening to jazz at the end of the day, or Renaissance music at the end of the day. Uh, and there, there are too many, there are too many variables. Yeah, it's interesting because when I was, you know, in the heyday of recording back in the, so the very late 1980s and into the 1990s, when all these new record companies started out, there was Virgin Classics, Collins Classics, all of these ones, all had open checkbooks and it was wonderful. Um, and it was lovely for me because I was working with Collins Classics and it was very much uh, artist-led. So I could do the things that I really wanted to do. And uh, one of those was something which which is not trademark 16 at all. It's It was entitled La Jeune France. And Robert, you'll know all about this because you've done the uh, Daniel Lazur um, mm. uh, Cantique de Cantique. This amazing choir, Marcel Corot created in France, I would have loved to have heard it, because he commissioned Messiaen, uh, Jolivet, and Daniel Lazur to write 20-minute pieces for uh, 12 voices. And I had the opportunity to record all this, and uh, we did the Saint-Crochant of Messiaen, which was just amazing. And I just want to play you the third movement of it, because it has the only vocal orgasm I know in choral music.
Well, 10 points to the 16 door. That's a virtuosic bit of singing. Incredibly difficult music. Um, uh, however, minus 10 points, Harry, you'll have to come to remedial classes on Sing the Score for more orgasms in choral music. I, I, I have a little list. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that was amazing. I mean, that was Sarah Leonard on the top there. I mean, just in- exquisite, um, amazing singing. And uh, the likes of Caris Lane, Libby Crabtree, Cathy Denley. Debbie Miles Johnson, Sally Bruce Payne, Neil McKenzie, Simon Berridge, Nick Robertson, Rob Evans, Simon Birchall, and on the bass there, Jeremy White. So quite a lineup of, of singers that were just phenomenal in this. But you know, it gave me the occasion, I mean, not only to record all these pieces, but and one of those is the Jolivet Epitalam, which mm. now very I would say there's very few pieces in the whole 16 catalogue, and I've done about 120, 30 discs, that we've not actually performed in public. And But, you know, I sort of, this is a challenge to people, to perform Jacques Jolivet's Epitalam. It is fiendishly difficult, not only notes and rhythm, but just sheer stamina. And actually, when we recorded it, we had to do it in literally uh, sort of five-page chunks because people were just completely whacked. And uh, most most of it mentally, because the notes are hard, the rhythm's hard, um, but just listening to everything around you. I mean, have you ever, I mean, do you try and perform the music before you record it? That's a, an ongoing fight, isn't it? Because the record companies want you to tour it afterwards. Um, but as a musician, you want to perform it first as much as possible so that by the time you come to put it down, it feels as natural as possible. Um, I suppose it's a mix, but generally one ends up recording it first. One of the benefits of having uh, my own chamber choir is it's given me the opportunity to program music, which I'm going to be recording with the 16. So with some of the Polish discs that uh, that I've recorded, um, I was able to try out some of the music with them first. Yeah, this is the beauty, isn't it, though, of, of, of recording? I mean, for me doing that Messiaen, for instance, pieces piece that I really wanted to do and I felt I had something to say about and just just great to be able to for a record company to take it up and say yes we're happy for you to do it and but one of the other great things I think of of the advent of the CD has been this sort of willingness to to sort of look at repertoire that's that's not known at all and to unearth some phenomenal pieces and and put them onto a cd for for the whole world to be able to hear and uh, you know i did a, a, a had a wonderful series of portuguese music i mean robert you you unearthed umpteen amounts of scores yeah yeah i think uh, for me that's been the primary thing it's um, we have done some monteverdi although in, in rather concept-led uh, album way and that 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 has all been recorded before but everything else we've done has been been a first Tompkins 1622 book mm-hmm. the croce two sets of carnival masks and and although we talked last time a lot about the difficulties of recording and the you know the stresses and strains of it uh, putting down something that hasn't been done before is very exciting because you realize you know we're not that interested in legacy but it is interesting to put something out there that is new and you say to people look because because music I find is so much about sharing. I've got this fantastic piece, and I want people to hear it. Mm. So it is very exciting from that point of view. It is, isn't it? I mean, Eamon, your Polish series. I mean, that. I mean, take us through the whole sort of start of that, and, and you know, the, the whole process of going through this music, trying to find out what pieces you should record. You know, what order did you put them in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, well, I I remember you arriving at a, at a rehearsal with this big set of scores under your arm <laughs> one day, handing them over to me and say, "I've been sent these." Have There's a look no room them. in my house for them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Have a look at them and see what you think. Uh, and and I thought there was there was some really interesting interesting music there. 
Um, and it came about that uh, a Polish cultural institute, the Adam Mietzkiewicz Institute, had uh, offered some financial support if we were to make a recording of this, but there was a deadline on it, uh, and you were too busy, so you very generously asked me whether I'd like to uh, to, to lead on that project, and I bit your hand off. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, as you say, then it's a case of... of of, of trawling through the music because of course you've got to you know it might look all right on the page how's it actually going to sound um and then finding making sure that there's enough variety on the disc I mean, the first composer uh Penkiel, was uh gave us plenty of scope for that because there was instrumental music and uh vocal instrumental music and acapella music in both prima pratica and seconda pratica style so it, it sort of worked out rather nicely a amusing moment that springs to mind from the first session though where we recorded uh the missa a 14 which of which there are just two movements the kyrie and the gloria and got to the end of the first playthrough and i said well what do you think of that folks you know but you didn't expect that to come from poland and die miller our uh our theorbo player lent forward and went that's by books to huda boy that's not penkiel (laughs) 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 putting the rug from underneath me um but it then led to uh you know, looking at this Polish music, I then discovered that there was a whole swathe of, of over a hundred Italian musicians who had gone and worked in Poland. Some quite big names, including Marenzio and uh, the younger Anerio. Uh, and then this led to exploring a repertoire that they'd written out there, and then discovering other Polish composers who came after them. So it developed this this rather nice uh, this rather nice theme. Um, and the next piece that we're going to hear, actually, we've been talking about you know, making discoveries. Marenzio, obviously you know, a composer that anyone re- interested in Renaissance music will know, uh, worked in Poland for a, a short period of time. And a piece that he wrote while out there, the Misa Iniquos Audio Abui, it's a, it's a parody mass based on one of his own motets, but only two movements had been extant, the, the Kyrie and the Gloria, and no one had ever found the, the remaining movements but in a nice moment of serendipity, um, the uh, Polish musicologist who I'd been working with had discovered the rest of the mass uh, and had made an addition and it was ready in time for us to record it.
That was the Sanctus from the Missa Iniquos Audio Aboi by Luca Marenzio uh, with the 16 and myself conducting in what turned out to be the premier recording of it, uh, the other movements of the Mass having been found in recent years. That's that's very interesting, Eamon, because I've not heard that before. I have heard some of your Polish stuff. And I remember when we were doing the vibrato episode a few months ago, uh, you played us something uh, with you conducting and there was, there was a, a certain approach, which of course is different from Harry's and would be different from mine. And just listening to that, I wonder if I would have known it was you conducting instead of Harry. There was just a very lovely, loose turn of phrase at one moment. It was very, very natural and lovely. Uh, it just, but could I tell it was different from Harry? Anyway, I'd like to pretend that I could. Lovely. Oh, it's all Eamon. It was all Eamon, definitely. Something you mentioned before, Eamon, um, musicologists, I mean, they're just amazing. By um, having them there, doing all this incredible research, fantastic additions. Um, you know, we've used the likes of John Milson, Martin Emery. They're just brilliant. Um, but let's not forget our, the people who write the sleeve notes, because I think when I open a CD, I want to read some sleeve notes that are not only well-written, but actually give me a sense of, um, you know, setting the scene historically, politically, not over-academic. Uh, and I think it's really important. And that's something we strive for, definitely with Coro, that we get really good sleeve notes. It is quite an art, I think. Uh, and it's not necessarily always the academics are the best people to write them, uh, but, they, but they can be. Uh, but uh, I wonder whether that's something that's changed, because now with everything being on streaming... Uh, how you don't open that either vinyl or CD booklet if you can get the wretched thing out of the CD cover uh, and read in the same way. You know, we all want to hear what the sound is straight away. And I suppose in the old days, we'd put that on. But I wonder whether that's a little bit of a lost art. But uh, people who write well, who writes fantastically well? James Weeks, uh, who directs Exaudi, he writes beautiful notes, so imaginative, they're almost like a work of art themselves. Hugh Keat, uh, who I've done quite a lot with and who worked with Taverna Consort and Paul McCreesh and the Gabrielli Consort. He writes from such a cross-cultural perspective. So instead of just thinking of the music, it's music in its place with the other art and other you know, political things going on at the same yeah. time. Lindsay Kemp, Andrew Stewart. I mean, there are lots of them. They, they, they write really well. I think that's the, that's the important thing. Somebody that actually, you, you, you start reading, you would really want to finish those notes and they're, they're going to sort of excite you to listen to the CD. But you're quite right, Robert, about this whole business that people, listing um you know downloads and things like that and not perhaps getting those notes they're losing something something may we need to think about this and address it probably they're a wonderful resource to have i mean i over the years have collected you know hundreds of cds and there's an ongoing conversation in our house as to why we can't get rid of them since everything's digital now but i want them on the shelf and the ease of being able to go find the recording that you know and you remember that you've read something that's particularly pertinent or useful in a sleeve notes and just being able to pull it off the shelf. You know, I think I wouldn't put yeah. a point on that and, and I'm certainly yeah. keeping them. Well, we Robert. go back to Hyperion, don't we? In that uh, Hyperion, amazingly, have not put their stuff available on all these stream providers. So when you go to their website, uh, for a start, you have to pay properly for it. And I'm afraid the streamers, you know, don't 
pay properly for it. Uh, and uh, and then you have the, the the download that you can take with you, all the artwork, uh, and indeed other companies as well, Shandos and plenty of others. If you're buying from their website, you can buy the the, the download of the of the notes and the and the text and translations. That's always my fight yeah. to try to get people to to know what you're actually singing about if you're an Italian or German or French or Spanish. Yes, and you can download them properly. You don't have to get that fiddly, as you mentioned, getting that fiddly booklet out of that case. It's a real pain. We come up with something better there. <laughs> I, I'm interested to the extent in which, uh, you know, the, I wonder if this is going to be the episode that is about the positive sides of recording. Because mm-hmm. uh, with Milsom talking about how you can, when you're singing just to one microphone, you can do something incredibly in, intense. Um, and uh, you can also do something that is monstrous and absolutely unfeasible to do most of the time in concerts and back uh, about 10 years ago when we did the first recording of the Strigia 40-part mass that had been discovered by David Mulroney uh, in 2005 or 6 I think um, uh, we did tour it a bit but it wasn't a brilliant success I think the touring of it because it was hard for the audiences to be in the middle of it but recording we had all this lineup of 60 something musicians with the mics in the middle and everyone listening to that is is in the best seat of the house and we had you know, we had recorder players Sean players sackbutts cornets viols uh, lutes lirone and uh, it was one of the most special weeks of my life recording that. And so we're just going to hear a little bit, not the whole thing, just a little bit of, of the motet that uh, Stridger wrote in 1561, probably Ecce Beatum Luciam. And worth remembering here that uh, composers simply wrote, put text under everything they wrote at this time. And it was entirely up to the performers how they might have performed it with voices or with instruments. And I've orchestrated this so that you can hear the different groups in the 40 part ensemble more easily.
was part of Stridger's 40 voice uh, motet, Ecce Beatum Lucem, Behold the Blessed Light. Fantastic. And absolute, wow, what a wonderful field day for the engineers to do that. Did you, uh, so, so how many mics set up there? Remember? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we it, That was one that Adrian Hunter actually uh, abdicated responsibility for. He decided just to be the pair of ears, the producer, and we had uh, a separate production team in with, yeah. with all the mics. That is, as you say, I mean, that's a perfect example of how to do recording correctly uh, when you're wanting to achieve something, as you say, you're orchestrating it and you're wanting all those different uh, sonorities to come through and, as you say, the voices to come through over the cornets, etc. I mean, there are, there are interesting things that happen, aren't there, with, with just choirs? I mean, we hear, you know, we, we hear loads of stories from all our various singers who sing for numerous other groups um, and the way, um, you know, sounds are set up. And I, I, I sort of remember very much very fondly Tallis scholars and, and Peter uh, using a, a setup where uh, I think it was Mike Clements and Mike Hatch devised it. And it was basically, it meant that the Tallis scholars, I think there was only eight of them at that particular time, had to stand in a straight line. Uh, and they got the most incredible sound in this ch- church called Saul. And I think it's in the depths of Norfolk somewhere. Yes. And it was absolutely amazing. And that really became the trademark Tallis scholars sound. And they used that set, of, set up for quite a few years after that. Um, but then we sort of hear stories of, um, you know, a conductor saying, oh, look, I need that to be pianissimo. Would you put your copies in front of your face or turn to face the back? And you sort of think, is that, should we be doing that? Is that correct? But technology is there. Nobody's actually seeing us and actually people are buying the CD. So it comes back to this thing of, of what are we seeking? Are we seeking perfection? I think we have to accept that recording is different. And sometimes, remember Hugh Keat talking about this when they did the Taverner Consort recording of the um, Florentine Intermedi from 1589. Mm. And apparently they blew most of the the budget on a big scaffold because they wanted a lot of top to bottom, but that doesn't really work on stereo. And so you have to use any trick you can to make it work. And I, I know one conductor who does a lot of that, and I reviewed some of his discs in my reviewing days and absolutely loved them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you have to understand that recording is a different art from, or can be a different art form from performing live. And uh, there are subtleties, there are things that you want them to work in the ears of people listening. And that may not be the same as them working in the space. And this is when it comes back, Harry, to your point about trusting the, the producer. If you've told the producer what you want, then it's up to, to she or, or he to, to make sure that you're getting that through the ears. Yeah. I'm going to play devil's advocate here because there's a, I would love to know with any of you have heard about a recording you know, that you absolutely love and you've heard about how it was done, and then you, you, you can't listen to it anymore. Because this happened to me once. It was a, 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 a opera uh, by Poulenc, in fact, and I just loved this recording. I couldn't wait for it to come out, and I, I thought it was fantastic. And then I met uh, one of the lead singers, and uh, they said, oh, I, I said, this is wonderful. And she said to me, but Harry, I never met any of the rest of the cast. <laughs> and I went, what? And the whole thing had been recorded orchestrally, and literally every soloist and the chorus had been dubbed on on top. And I couldn't listen to that. You know, this is an opera. So that I'm afraid that I don't 
it's it's gone from my CD cabinet. It's I just I just felt no, I can't listen to it. <laughs> so that's that's quite strange, isn't it? And actually, it's funny because I sometimes find um, with critics, conversely, you know, you you hear find a critic say, well. You know, it's a pity they had to use um, a, a sort of uh, a ghostly sound for that particular singer and put him into an echo chamber. And this happened to be on our, our Saul recording. Um, and we're gonna, I'm going to play you the bit of the ghost of Samuel appearing to Saul. And uh, it's sung by Stuart, Stuart Young as the ghost of Samuel and, and Saul is, is Christopher Purvis. And uh, we've just simply used a bit more of the church to create this slightly eerier atmosphere for, for the bassoons and, and for uh, the ghost of Samuel. Said it. He 
That was from Act Three of Saul by Handel, with Stuart Young as the ghost of Samuel and Christopher Purvis as Saul. Harry, I rather like that um, that bit of extra space. So it sounds like the ghost of Samuel is singing from across the ages almost, uh, and gives it that the the uh, the distinction between the living and the dead. I think it works very well. Yeah, and it just used all we did, did was use a bit more church, and uh, it's amazing. I mean, you've been in the box with Mike, and he says, you know, here's 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 not, no church, here's a middle church, here's here's a lot of it, and you you've just got all this to play with. And to me, that's that's um, you know that's normal. That's what you've got. You're not doing anything out of character. That's right. So you're it's, it's you're just using the building that's there. But mm. Robert, when you um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when you recorded your Leonardo disc, you recorded in a studio. Is that right? Yes, and if I nearly, um, you know, I nearly had a fight with Harry last week because he said you never want to be in a studio. But I've t- I've twice had to go into studios. The first time was because um, because we were record. Oh, I was exact. Oh yes, it was for the, uh, the 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 film we did, How Like an Angel, with the Australian circus company Circa, and we needed a number of different acoustics, uh, and so we recorded it basically in what felt like someone's living room. It was all rather odd. And then uh, resonance was added to it later, which which happens probably more on recordings than you, you think. Uh, and then when we came to do Leonardo, it was going to be a tight schedule, lots of different sorts of music attaching different pieces to different Leonardo paintings. And, uh, you know, sometimes we needed to be in a sort of dry chamber room. Sometimes, you know, we did the howls that you played last time, Eamon, the uh, saviour of the world. And it was 16 singers and it needed to be more of a church. And the other thing is, as, as you will both know better than anyone, uh, you can lose as much as half your takes through outside mm. interference. Cars, circular saws, building work, kids playing... Uh, things happening next door that you didn't know about and that could be financially ruinous uh, also i've had to record a, a cancel a recording once in the middle because wind was too much of a problem uh, yes. uh, hang on let me get this right you're saying that the wind was inside the church so it was flatulence <laughs> <laughs> naughty boy uh, so we went to this studio in london uh, for the last recording because we had so many different sorts of acoustics what i hadn't foreseen was that uh, the last piece, which was a commission by Adrian Williams on a new poem by the Welsh poet Gillian Clark, would actually start to take on a life of its own because we recorded the whole thing and we'll just hear a little bit of it now. But because the piece is about invention and about Leonardo's interest in, in all things, well, just actually in all things, um, also in bats and echolocation, it starts, listen, bats on the evening air sounding the dusk with cries too high to hear. Uh, and the, the producer, Adrian Hunter, started playing around with acoustics really to get you listening. And it's deliberately invasive, and I absolutely love it.
Part of Adrian Williams and Gillian Clark's Shaping the Invisible for our 2019 disc, Leonardo Shaping the Invisible. It was fantastic. I mean, just amazing. But, you know, that was a particular piece, wasn't it, that needed that studio effect all the, and all the effects that could be done with technology. It's amazing. Um, just brilliant. I mean, I do love that. Um, but, I, you know, I go back to sort of, well, it was about probably 10 years ago I was doing something, at recording, and uh, it was a pretty dry acoustic we were in. And I remember being, for the first time being introduced to different acoustics and Mike said, oh, don't worry, I can put, put whatever you want on. You can have St Paul's, you can have Walthamstow Town Hall, you can have St Albans Hope, and I've got them all. And I sort of looked at him and great, you know, I was totally and utterly puzzled, incredibly naive, but I suddenly realised that this, of course, this world is open to us all and in more ways than one. It's just great. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for the right piece, I think it's fantastic and I'm, I'm all for it. Um, but, you know, I, I, but something Eamon asked that was talking to me the other day about, and uh, Eamon, you were mentioning, you know, how do people actually listen to music these days? I mean, what are they wanting? Uh, and, and, you know, is there far too much choice out there? Yeah, this came out of um, partly from a, a session that we did with uh, with Genesis sixteen uh, recently, and and also when I've been talking to other other younger singers at, at the Guildhall School of Music, you know, we mentioned in the last uh, episode on recording that you know when I had my cassettes when I was growing up, I used to listen to them to the point where I'd actually wear them out. So you'd get to know every single nuance uh, of a recording. And I just don't think that people listen like that nowadays with streaming because because it's all there at your fingertips, this vast 
uh, amount of variety that, that people don't listen as intensively or, or attentively, perhaps, because you don't necessarily do repeated listening to the same artist or the same track again and again and again. And I was just interested to think about the impact that has on um, on musicians that, you know, let's say mm. formative years, you know, I can absolutely think back to listening to, you know, to recordings of Gérard Suzet, the great French baritone, and how much he influenced uh, me, you know, as a, as a singer. And I found myself trying to imitate his phrasing uh, and, you know, listening to recordings of Simon Keenleyside and Thomas Allen and Anthony Rolf Johnson and, and really, you know, focusing and emulating try, or trying, trying to emulate them. Um, you do, one does have sort of, you know, uh, recordings that one goes back to everyone listening will, will, well, actually will everyone listening. I think it is a generational thing. Um, I, you know, certain Beethoven recordings with the Vienna Philharmonic, you know, all the symphonies that I just listened to on vinyl again and again and again. Now, these days I look at some of my students here in the music department and they have cultural references far wider than I ever did because they can just find something straight away. In the same way as you're listening to this program and you say Genesis 16 and someone might not know what that is, they can just look it up. Mm. Um, but but that close, deep listening, for example, a Mozart clarinet um, quintet, a recording I used to have, just again and again and again. And I could tell you every little way he was going to bend something. Oh, is that good? That? I don't know, but uh, I can't remember who it was. Oh. But 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 it was the mu- it was really being close contact with the with the with the musicianship and the and that particular performance. I think you're absolutely right, and and we we found with the young singers that uh, that they would listen to something, they'd put a track in, they'd put a piece in, and Google it or you know do it on Spotify, but they wouldn't know which which artist they were listening to, and I think that's crucial. As as Emma just said, you know brought up on Gerald Su- Gerard Suze and all these sort of things. And, and me as a clarinetist, it was always Gervais Depay who always played that little bit sharp. It was always exciting and interesting. Um, His lawyers and, will be in touch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, Bernstein recordings, all those sort of things. And you really related to what was there. I mean, what I can't, what sort of does sort of annoy me with the, particularly with the very big companies, is their obsession with the, with the same old pieces being re-recorded and redone. And indeed, when they want a, a sort of solo album by a, by a top uh, leading soprano, they'll inv- invariably ask for exactly the same repertoire and, and, and don't sort of risk. And you sort of want that element to happen. I think what has to understand is that big companies are like any other big companies. Their job is is to make money and to pay for their execs' time, uh, so they don't risk in the same way. I was at the um, I was busy not winning something at the Gramophone Awards a couple of years ago, and uh, spoke to an exec, and he said, actually, there's now so much money coming in from the back catalogue of streaming that they don't really need to make new recordings in the same way anymore, which is a, a shocking thing. I just you know, who wants big companies? Eh? It's the small companies like your own, uh, Coro, that, that are leading the way. Yes, because I think, you know, we need to be introducing people to, to new music, not sort of uh, giving the public what they want, uh, because... But it's there already, isn't it? You it know? is, it is, isn't it? I mean, this, this actually brings us on to something we, we touched on in the, in the previous episode um, about live recording compared to recording things in a session I mean these are sort of I'm thinking more of bigger pieces um, and you know there's something about that live recording that captures the moment 
and I think there was always a, a reluctance to do a live recording with with, with period orchestras um, or indeed small choirs because of stamina, etc. And it, in terms of the early instruments, was in terms of tuning and things could go wrong. You know, bows could could break and uh, reeds could snap or whatever. Um, but t- tell me, tell me what your thoughts are. I mean, would you would you prefer with a big piece to be recording it live and capturing that sort of frissance of the moment? It's funny because having said that, in the, I said in the last episode that recording was maybe not a medium that I particularly enjoy. I think when it comes to recording, I'd almost always choose to do it in sessions rather than live. I think maybe that's because the few re- discs that I have made uh, as as live recordings, um, I think it's good to be able to go back and <laughs> and have a second shot at something, probably. And I'm not I'm not sure that a live recording does always capture the free song that you find if you're actually there in the hall. But there's there's a it depends what it is, isn't it? I mean, we we started the first recording um, uh, program with a, a live bit of Fagellini doing a comic piece, and that that absolutely fed into the audience enthusiasm and response, and that's one thing. But the trouble is, most of the time, people are listening with a different set of ears. They are listening, if not for perfection. They they don't want to hear fluffs. They don't want to hear a car going outside. So I think audience expectations have changed uh, how we actually work in the building. Yes, and I mean, most of the live recordings that come out, and I, I'm the culprit with, with this as well, you know, they are recorded over a couple of performances. So you you are sort of patching between the two of them. And and uh, so all my ones with the Handel and Heinz Society in Boston, they are done live, partly out of necessity and finance, but also we do have the beauty of performing in, in Boston's Symphony Hall, which is the most gorgeous acoustic. Um, and uh, so... I've done a series of Haydn symphonies there and masses. And I just want to play you the, the Benedictus from the Nelson Mass. Uh, it's got a great uh, uh, cast. It's Mary Bevan, Catherine Wynne Rogers, Jeremy Bard, and Sumner Thompson. And it's the Hand and Haydn Society Orchestra and Chorus. And I'm just going to play you the Benedictus. Listen for those three trumpets when they come in.
That was the Benedictus from the Nelson Mass. Gosh, don't you just love those three trumpets in unison? It, you sort of jump out of your seat at that moment. It's yes. just a live moment for me. Now, guys, um, gosh, we're in this uh, ridiculous world we're in at the moment, uh, in a pandemic. Um, you know, what does the future hold for recording? Have any actually have any of you done a recording in this uh, in this uh, lockdown? Uh, well, we've been doing some stuff, um, but you, you refer to that Poulenc opera that was put together with people separately. And, you know, that's people will be listening, thinking, yeah, that's how we've been putting stuff together. Mm-hmm. It's a new world, isn't it? With engineers worth their weight in gold trying to put the stuff together. But why do we do it at all? Um, the model is completely broken. There's no question about that. Um, we haven't been making money out of CDs for a long time. And also, you know, people are now so used to the convenience of streaming that, you know, they'll come up to you at a concert, pick up the CD and say, oh, that, look, that looks nice. I'll go and listen to it on Spotify. I mean, straight out to your face. Uh, and, the, and the amount of money made from Spotify, I mean, it's it's nothing at all. So uh, the, you sell them at concerts. I know you've got a very good team after concert selling, but that, that still can't justify the cost of making them. No, not at all. I mean, uh, and at the moment, I, I think we must try and make the odd CD because... Uh, you know, concerts are few and far between and our public need to be hearing something. I mean, we did a recording a couple of weeks ago, which was postponed from May um, in St. Augustine's Kilburn. Marvellous pieces like Bax, Marta, Aura, Filium. It was one mm. of my mixed bag things. And, you know, it was so hard. Uh, the singers were absolutely brilliant. If it had been another, if it had been a normal times uh, and I'd said to the singers, right, we're going to be in the middle of the church, we're going to be in three rows, you're going to be 1.5 metres away from each other, two metres between rows. Gents, you're going to be on rises, individual rises, you're going to have to carry your own chairs everywhere. Um, they would have been moaning and griping and things, but because we're in the situation we are, they just got on with it. They couldn't hear the person next to them. It really was trusting in me. Uh, Mike Hatch loved it for engineering. He said, "This sound is, is is great," but it was so so hard, and this is this is not going to change for many months. And uh, we have to get uh, used to these difficulties of recording. And certainly, what people are listening to that there's, I mean, one of our trustees said to me not so long ago, "There's it's just amazing the amount of stuff on there, but it's, there's almost so much that I just want to collapse in the evening and watch Midsummer Murders." <laughs> Uh, and and what, what do you do? You know, how does one make something that is exciting enough to want to watch and, and listen online? Because people don't watch in the same way that they listen. There are different faculties involved, aren't they? I don't know. But just in case people are not quite sure what we're talking about here, the, the, the reason now that we can make CDs is because we try to get them pre-funded, not from the record companies. They don't have the money. We all try to crowdfund and we have groups of supporters that will buy a track or support something. And as you'll hear at the beginning and end of this program, we're trying to encourage you listeners to contribute to the cost of making this because the the arts uh, is not well is is having to learn to self fund more and more, and it's it's very difficult and it's very worrying and it takes up a huge amount of thought and time. Yeah, I mean, Eamon, you've been one of the lucky ones recently. You've been over to um, Denmark, I think, doing some uh, a couple of. Um, socially distanced performances yeah, with an audience. Uh, they did have audience. Uh, they did have an audience. Yes, in both in both venues, we were in. Uh, I was working with the uh, Danish National Vocal Ensemble, and uh, we did a performance in Roskilde, uh, which is the National Cathedral there. Uh, you know, vast building, uh, but they had an audience of uh, I think about 150 mm-hmm. in there. And then we were in the main hall at uh, at Danish Radio, which is a, a vast space that seats thousands. And again, there were 
um, you know, about 300 people there, I think. And the singers socially distanced, you know, as you said, really struggling to hear each other. Um, I mean, I think from a conductor's perspective, you know, it's nice to know that they do actually need us from time to time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, we, we do have a server purpose. Um, but it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult world at the moment. And there, there are new initiatives, though, coming out. I mean, well, we've all seen them, people starting up their own, you know, putting concerts online, and that kind of thing. The most interesting one for me has been live from London that Butch is eight yes. set up that's been quite a phenomenon because they made it work financially first time and now they've just announced their thrilling looking Christmas series with groups like take six yes. performing I mean these guys are legends and we're going to see them live it's fantastic it is brilliant um, and, and that I mean people with a little bit of get up and go um, I mean uh, there are there are things in the pipeline all around it'll be interesting to see which ones have legs absolutely uh, so the future for recording, well, we'll, we'll just wait and see mm. and uh, look forward to, uh, you know, lovely CDs coming out from both uh, Ifagellini and the 16 over the next few months. Uh, guys, it's always great to chat, um, but we're reaching the end of this episode of Choral Chihuahua. Cool suspension. And we're going to finish with a Fagellini track from 2012. I was going to say 1612. The disc was called 1612 Italian Vespers. Um, and this was our follow-up to uh, the Strigio 40-part mass recording. And it goes back to a number of things we've we touched on, working with uh, interesting people. We call them academics, but this is Hugh Keats, who wouldn't call himself that academic. He's just a very broad, cultural-ranged, interesting bloke and he came up with this idea that Gabrielle is in ecclesis which is for sort of six brass instruments two solo singers a cappella which is a choir if you like and then two solo instruments was actually a short score because it was put together uh, by a, a bassoon player Grani after Gabrielle's death and he thought that there was it, it didn't look right so he wrote some extra parts for it and I think we've become much more relaxed about this kind of thing uh, so instead of at the beginning just hearing one singer with continuous singing in ecclesis, there are now three instruments, uh, two instruments, and another singer in the middle. So what you're going to hear is a highly supercharged version of in ecclesis, absolutely thrilling. I mean, do not adjust your sets and get ready for seven minutes of extraordinary Venetian power music.
Wow, that was impressive, wasn't it? That was Hugh Keats' enlargement of Giovanni Gabriele's In Ecclesies, the combined forces, massed forces of E. Fagellini and the English cornet and sackbut ensemble. Just incredible. Wow. Um, so next time you'll see us, we'll be uh, with Carolyn Sampson. Join us then. Cool Chihuahua is brought to you by E. Fagellini and the Sixteen and produced by Perseus the Sixteen, E. Fagellini and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. Thanks to all of you who are using the link in the programme description to make a small donation to the making of these, by the way. Um, and what we haven't yet had is a choir sponsoring an episode. So if your choir enjoys the show, do be in touch through either ensemble. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.